Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Parmesan the Reggiano. It's old cheese made in Italy. Comes in wheels. Like that clip right there. Were you recording? Oh my god! <laughs> That's just like that was that was the fucking the guy, Theo Vaughn. It's a Theo Vaughn moment. Like <laughs> that's old cheese. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to the haunted estate. Welcome to the Haunted Estate, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. We, it's, Welcome back. It's been a minute. We it's have been not a been here. Hot minute. Oh, I said I was going to go live on Instagram. It's really good. I didn't yet. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing things we shouldn't be. Parmesan. Yeah. Um, Adam, okay. I just had to start this this whole podcast saying, like, it's been a month. Since we've we've really recorded it. Oh, I think we did a rerun also. It could have been a month and a half or so. Yeah, since we've been here. Since we've actually updated you guys on the realness and seriousness of Team Spooky Boo. Yeah. um, And I have some like really. Taylor's here. Yeah. Hey. Hey, Taylor. Taylor's um, Taylor's really going through it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. Careful. I think, I don't know. I think we can touch lightly on it. Um, I I don't think we have the whole story yet. So it's not something that we can. um, Excuse yourself, my dear. Get that out of you. We need a mute button. Yeah, so we found out some really bad news yesterday. Um, Someone who we were friends with, we found out passed away. And we don't really know all the details yet, so it's kind of open-ended. Um, I think that's something we'll definitely talk about in the next episode, but existing's been spicy the last day and a half. Um, Roller coaster to, of emotions. Trying to navigate through... Right. There's just a lot of questions. I mean, between the three of us, we've got a solid support system. So Yeah. And Taylor, we love you. Both love of you. Too. Both of you be very open with what's going on with your mental health, please. Yeah, of course. Of oh, course. it's fucked. <laughs> it. okay. It's, it's hey. fucked. <laughs> no, um, it, it's just crazy. You know, we have some ideas on, on what happened where we think we know mm-hmm. what happened. Um, but I we just can't speak too much on it until we know exactly what happened. But it was, uh, yesterday was a very rough day. I'm just packing that away because I want to be here. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it. And I want to talk to you guys because it's been a really long time. And a lot of bad things have happened, but a lot of really good things have yeah, happened too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's life, right? It, it, ups and downs. And you got to still enjoy the joyful moments when they do come. But you're allowed to still be sad and, you know, go through other shit too. Yeah. I think when I, like, let's talk about a positive thing. Um, 
you guys have definitely been on the journey with Adam this whole time. And, and, and I, the whole internet world has never known Adam the yeah. way that I've known him. Cause he's been so sick. Yeah. It's been what? Five years now. Yeah. It's fucked. I was good. Like I was almost better halfway through it, like two and a half or two years ago. Still before any of this TikTok. But then, yeah, that would have been like right when it was starting kind of. Yeah. Yep. And then it went downhill again though. Yeah. No, it, went, it was, while. it was probably worse than it's ever had been. Oh, the worst was when it first happened for the first four months. But like this was a, this was a different kind of worse because it was just lingering and like I couldn't do much of anything. Yeah. Like Uh, the the world kind of knew Adam as a guy who sat in a chair and didn't talk and was super sick. Um, And uh, he went into cognitive for a second time. And now we're about that three, four months past. Yeah. Cognitive, cognitive FX. So there is actually a program in Canada too. I don't want to speak to just cognitive FX being the help you need. If you're in Canada, there's a program at the London uh, Health Sciences Center, St. Joe's, and it's similar to the, what they it's do. It's the at waiting list, right? Like, but there is a crazy waiting list. It's tough to get in. If you're in our area, local area, they do do it at our hospital now too. But um, the truly the only way to heal these brain injuries, if you're deep into them and you don't seem like you're getting any more push forward anymore, is rehabilitation. And it takes a lot of willpower and work. Mm-hmm. You have to do tons of brain exercises combined with supervised cardio, not getting your heart rate too high, and, and as well as rest and meditation. And oh, the combination the of those three things is super important. But the good news is it's been three months since I went to Cognitive FX for two weeks, oh. which they're number one for sure, like on the top of this stuff and really into it of concussion. We tried like everything. Yeah. And, um, and I'm feeling amazing, like way better. It just kind of, it didn't come out of nowhere, it, but over the first, like they even tell you when you go there in three months, you're going to start to feel the benefits. You're going to go home and feel like crap for a month or at least a couple weeks. And then you're not going to notice much right away. So it slowly got better, but there's been like a really big push, really big jump lately. I'm finally lifting heavier things, doing more. And you, I still like you honestly careful. wouldn't even think he was sick, um, anymore. Like yeah. He's done more in the last two months than he's done in the last yes. five years completely. Other than, yeah, maybe that moment when I was feeling better two and a half years ago. But, but like, they, I don't but even see him anymore. He's just, yeah. he's out there, he's doing stuff. Yeah. He's like, so like I still life. have all the same symptoms, but like, and I get the same symptoms when I do these things, but I'm able to do so much more. So the idea is to keep pushing forward. Like my symptoms may never completely go away. I'll still get headaches, get dizzy. But doing the things that I wasn't able to do before is not setting me backwards or like really messing my brain up. Whereas like if I lifted too much heavy stuff, even three, four months ago, it would be like, it would like, they don't say you get concussed again, but my brain injury was so bad that like doing stuff like that, it did kind of push me backwards. So any healing I made, it got knocked back. But like cognitive gave me the ability to really push forward and jump forward in the healing with what they do. So now, and, and then when your brain gets stronger again like this, it is harder to get pushed backwards as well now. So there's just kind of a lot of positive things happening. But no. I still get the dizziness. I still have the headaches, but it's not. It's not what it was. It's not what it was. Thank God or and whoever's up for do that. do more. It's. It's weird. You don't get better. Like the headaches, the, the idea of the journey of healing with a concussion is not so that your headaches go away or you don't get dizzy. It's so that you can sustain and accomplish more longer before those symptoms set in again or before they tire you for the day or make you feel off. The one thing to say to it is like, 
your quality of life was at like 5%. Yeah, it was And now low. your quality of life is at... Yeah, I mean, I'm up to like a good 50, 60%. I'm, I'm sure in another six months, I'll be close to like, never be... Oh, I'm not going to say never. Like, I could be 100% again, but I say I at least get to 90% fast now because of the jump forward I made. That's amazing. Yeah, it's super amazing. I'm oh, th- like, I... The whole, like, when the, this started about two or three weeks ago, I started feeling this good again, finally. And the whole... You guys were gone. It was, yeah, when you guys were gone to Texas is when I really, like, started feeling amazing and was doing a lot. Maybe it's us. And I was was literally just walking around with, like, the biggest, fattest fucking smile on my face. I really thought you were going to say boner. And, well, it was basically a face boner. (laughs) But, um... It's like just the littlest things just made me happy. Like I would just fucking be smiling, listening to music, like just being able to drive my truck without having to. You found happiness in nothing before. Yeah. Like nothing. Nothing. Like you were miserable. And that's funny to talk about too, because pre-concussion, I was a a happy dude. But like now that I've gone through all that shit, it's like easier to find happiness in just the simplest shit. Because you've seen the darkest side of things, really. Yeah, like I don't, like our life's amazing. We're blessed and we have a lot of beautiful things and we have a beautiful relationship. But like I could lose it all other than you. I'd still need you and our relationship. But like I could not have it all and still just easily find joy in simple shit. Wait, you love me? I love you so much. Mm-hmm. Oh. You my God. I'm so glad you're better. What a weight that was. Thanks oh for swinging back God, around. Oh, God, what a fucking journey. There were so many times I was afraid to leave the house. And I was like, oh, because you were just like, I literally can't live like this. You're like, if this is my existence, like, I, I can't. Yeah. Which is just a scary thing. And that, to, like, you get through that, too. Like, that was a, pr- a part of the process. But, like, eventually you're like that for so long that you just, you either find joy in life again or get in a slump. So if you can find the willpower to find joy in life again, even at the level you're at, you just do it because fucking like, what the hell else is there to do? We definitely have to make a YouTube video though. Once you've (laughs) moped around for long enough, no matter how sick you are, I feel like a lot of people just find that joy for life again. Yeah, you have to to find a way, right? That's just like the human condition. But no, a lot has happened, and that's one of the definite positives. Um, if you guys have watched YouTube, then you've seen my post about Ozempic and um, the hell that I went through yeah, there. Yeah, your doom thoughts. Oh, my gosh. It was the worst anxiety of my life. You're and doing took, a lot better. It's oh, still all around a little bit, but, but like, man. When it was a pile, it's a freaking sprinkle now. Yeah. So I'll get the so anxiety well once in a while. But And it was crazy because like I have one doctor, um, and I just don't feel like we see eye to eye on a lot of things. And I know that, like, for him, he would just be like, no, there's no way that could be that. But then I, I have another doctor who's really awesome, too. And, you know, it felt nice to be heard. Um, she's like, okay, well, that makes sense because now you're not taking it and you're feeling better. And now we're weeks yep. out. She told me I had about three and a half, four weeks left. And I'm kind of in that last week. And this is okay. the less anxiety that I have felt since starting Ozempic. And I, my creativity is coming back. And it just did something to me and, and, and something that I need to reiterate because in the video, a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's perfect for me. Great. Try it. I want you to try yeah. it to the moon. This isn't like a, this isn't like a fuck Ozempic no. ta- talk No, it here. saves people. This is like, it's amazing for a lot of people. But I if wish you I could take it. are sensitive to mental health, Ozempic messes with hormones in your brain. Yeah, it does. And, and I it's wish- It's a synthetic hormone itself. I wish that I would have, you know, looked a little bit more into it. I loved Ozempic. Other than that, it worked amazing for me. I, my blood sugar was perfect. Um, 
yeah, it, gave me anxiety, made me a little like foggy in the brain, but that's something to be expected with it. I, now that I'm reading deeper and deeper into things, but yeah, try it, try it, try, try it. For me, it didn't work. No. Just like having an allergy. And now like I'm on this like roller coaster of trying to control my sugars. So we're trying to figure it out. Um, other than oh, we've that, got it figured out. It's just that life's so busy and there's so much stress like to implement the perfect. Like I can't go cook. I haven't had to, a kitchen since yeah, April. Yeah, I don't have a kitchen. To implement the perfect program for you to get better is hard right now. It's no, not this very hard. We've been so busy. Thing. We were in Ottawa. Um, something that I don't. You, you guys saw in an intro of a rerun. yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So I got to be in a movie. Right. It's How like was your a, first acting experience? You had Taylor there too by your side, and he was a huge help. We appreciate it. Yep. What did you think of the whole experience? It was cool. <laughs> you were right over. Yeah. It's okay. You don't. It was busy. It's fat. Crazy how fast paced everything is. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was. That was the week that I went up on the Ozempic, and my whole body just like, Oof. yeah, it was bad. Taylor, oh man, Taylor, what a bad week for that. Taylor kept me together. He, you know, he made everything better, which was great. I was melting down. It was terrifying, but I enjoyed the experience. I think I did. I think I did well. I'm curious to see it come out. I'm not like, I'm not like. It's so. I don't know what I can say about it because some people have posted about it that are in it, like, but. They're like, hold off. So I'm like, I don't know what I can say. Well, the what did the director tell you that day? That you're allowed to talk about you being in a movie? Yeah, well, they've posted like an article about what was filmed and where. So I don't know if okay. I can like say what it is can yet. you say who you got to act with? Yeah, that I can probably say. Yeah, your childhood. Yeah, one so of your- one of one of the, the actors in the film is Melissa Joan Hart, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Um, that was your favorite show as a kid, wasn't it? Yes. Or most watched anyway. Yes, and then we had... Um, Olivia, who um, acted in Degrassi, and then Connor, who was also in there, and he's been in a bunch of stuff. I, I don't have last names on me right now, but I think it's going to be really interesting. I ha- I have a very small part. I'm literally in three scenes, but like for my first step in the door, I, I had a lot of fun. It was really cool. I learned a lot of lingo. I had no idea. They're like, okay, boom, boom. I'm like, I don't know this. Can someone explain? <laughs> What's that word mean? I don't know. Um, that was like when we did the Ollie Gummy shoot. Yeah, they never gave me a script. And they're like, okay, action. And I'm like, no one told me yeah. what to say. Right. Oh my gosh. But no, this was a great experience. And then we were, uh, Taylor and I were in Texas mm-hmm. with Christina, call me Chris. We were doing some spooky stuff, which was um, also really cool. Yeah. Yeah. We got to go to backcountry Texas. Um, and then soon we're going to be doing some spooky stuff in LA and that takes me right into our next trip, guys. I'm going to be at VidCon. Um, make sure you get your tickets and it's in Anaheim, California. Um, and come see us. Come see us. Mainly Selena. Um, I'm not doing a meet and greet. I kind of everything. I was going to have a booth. I was going to do a meet and greet there, but now I'm not doing a booth and I was in too late for the meet and greet. So I will be doing a couple panels, but I'm going to hang around after the panels so I can meet you guys. And I'll be floating around. So I'm sure you guys will see me at some point. Um, Turn my headphones down a little bit, Taylor. I think it's echoing through the mic. I have to poop. Really? Yeah. Okay, go take a washroom break. We'll make a cut here. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now. All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You'll never guess what I did in there. What'd you do in there? Definitely didn't poop. Oh, no? I cast a spell. What kind of spell? One for good fortune and luck. Did it involve flushing? I did remember to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Taylor. So, where were we before you had to go poop? I talked about being a VidCon. VidCon. Which is going to be great. I'm doing um, a panel with like Kelsey Davies about spooky podcasting and stuff. Um, I'm going to be doing like a fun competition one. And my yearly Q&A with Chris, which is nice. going to be fun. And they won't change it. I've asked them so many times. Please, it says the creator hour. Q&A. Well, they're like creator hour. Anything could happen. I'm like, oh no, we're not prepared. This is literally going to be. That's uh, you a and Chris. Q&A. Anything can happen. You'll figure it out. Yeah. 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 Anyways, today, guys, I thought it'd be really, really fun to dive into a fun episode. I'm saying fun. Wow. So many of us women find serial killers fun. Why? What is that? What is it <clears throat> that like women love the true crime? And, like, dudes do too, but stuff. like it's a woman. They're like, oh, no, I, I need to calm do, down. But so dudes I'm aren't watch a intense about it like you and, and your other fellow women are. Like, I'm telling you, every dude's wife has like some kind of true crime podcast. Yeah. Because she wants to know how to get away with it. Yeah. yeah. Could be. Keep yourself in line. Yeah. Keep yourself in line. Yeah, whatever. All right. Now, here we go. Guys, so welcome. To another bone chilling episode of the haunted estate. Today we are going to dwell into the harrowing tale of tale of we was that Javed Javed Iqbal Javed Javed Iqbal, a name sent shock through Pakistan and the world. Prepare yourselves for a journey into the depths of a disturbed mind, where the line between reality and horror is blurred. In this episode, we will unravel the layers of Javed Iqbal's disturbing phys- psyche and explore the factors that shaped him into the monster he became. We will delve into the investigation that unfolded the tireless efforts of law enforcement and the courage of survivors who barely, bravely, I can't read, this is going to take a minute, (laughs) who (laughs) bravely shared their stories in pursuit of justice for the lost and the forgotten. But be warned, dear listeners, turn my mic down a bit, back normal like everyone else's. I think it's echoing because of that. I'm not sure. There we go. Now turn my headphones up slightly. Are you yeah, cutting that out? There we go. No, we don't need to cut that out. It was a little adjustment for the listeners. I'm so sorry, guys. That's one thing um, when Adam gets better. He gets very... No, I don't no, know how to was... say this. No, I'm, this is a truth. And that's the one thing I do on the podcast <laughs> is I speak my truth. It's a truth, you but have that a, moment needed to be You fixed. have a very severe, like, OCD moments where, like, it has to be the most perfect. Like, you can't be like... Oh, it's a little too loud. You have to have it exactly. Yeah, I mean, this one was for our listeners, but you are correct still. No. Yeah. But be warned, Selena. Oh, Selena. And dear listeners, for this episode, we'll push the boundaries of our understanding of human depravity. We'll confront the darkness recess. We'll, ooh, I can't read today either. I know. It's we'll, going to be a minute. We'll confront the darkest recesses of the human soul and strive to comprehend the unfathomable. 
Brace yourselves as we navigate this haunting labyrinth of terror in an attempt to shed light on the mind of a serial killer who forever scarred the history of Pakistan. Join us as we embark on a journey that challenges our notions of evil and tests the limits of our collective humanity. In this story of Javed Iqbal, a tale of horror, resilience, and the undying quest for justice. In the mid-1990s, the bustling streets of Lahore, Pakistan, were gripped by fear and terror. Little did its unsuspecting residents know that a sinister predator lurked among them, preying on vulnerable young boys who vanished without a trace. The horrific truth would soon be revealed, unveiling a tale that would haunt the nation for years to come. Javed Iqbal, an unassuming figure by day, transformed into a monster under the cover of darkness. Through manipulation and deception, he lured innocent children into his clutches, leading them into a house of horrors where unspeakable acts awaited them. It was a twisted labyrinth of pain and suffering, shattering lives of countless families and leaving scars that would never heal. As the body count rose and the rumors swirled, law enforcement embarked on a race against time to stop this merciless killer. But Javad Iqbal's insidious plot was far from ordinary. In a chilling letter addressed to the authorities, he claimed to have murdered an astonishing number of victims, over 100 young boys. The letter detailed his gruesome acts and chillingly explained his motivations, leaving an inedible mark on the nation's psyche. The story begins in Lahore, Pakistan, during the early 1990s. Lahore was like a young city that has been growing, that was trying to grow up to be a responsible adult. The city was still developing, but many, but mainly known for being one of the oldest cities in the subcontinent with remains of the Munghal emperors, century-old buildings and skyscrapers in close vicinity to the city was becoming an economic hub for the province of Punjab and became a final destination for many people. The happening environment of this city, rich street food culture, and being known for providing job opportunities to masses, the city grew major within these years and people started to develop rural areas as the city expanded. At that time, Lahore was a bustling city known for its rich history and vibrant culture. But beneath its charm lurked an unimaginable evil that would soon terrorize this entire region. But the bright lights of the chattering nights of the city, the after dark hangout culture to roam the bazaars, plazas and malls, no one would have thought a demon was dwelling among the innocent people of the city. Now Pakistan was not an ideal country, especially the, sides area, the side areas of big cities where poor people came for labor, settled their families, had a bunch of children and unable to provide for them. The city life got them sooner or later. A decade ago, it was normal for many children to fall victim to cheap drugs like heroin or Samad Bond. We'll have to check that out, what Samad Bond is. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, here it is. A cheap, highly addictive, polychlorophyll adhesive oh. sold off the shelves. Oh, they huff it. I watched a documentary so it's like on this. basically huff and glue. Yeah, they would huff glue. They had bags and they'd have um, like blue oh, I've marks. seen that. Yeah, mm. we saw that. The it's so cheap, right? Right, and, and accessible, yeah. Mm-hmm. The outcast boys would holler around garbage dumps at night on drugs and begging for pennies in the morning, having having the time of their lives. The local government bodies, the law enforcement, were so tired of capturing them, but it only filled the jail cells. If anyone was ever caught on someone's report, they were out before they were booked in a different area and life went on. Many parents who knew their child would have gone never considered missing, filing a missing child report which eradicated the culture in the local police to even look for the lost children. 
They did their jobs only after certain cases were hyped up on television or someone from the government or powerful people took notice. With large families to feed, poverty, and lack of resources, many parents used to give up hope in a few days thinking they'd lost their child, keeping the hope alive that someday someone will knock on their door with news about their child. See, that's the thing. Um, when I watched this documentary, like literally like it was like the cool kids did the drugs and then they'd run off and they just lived on the streets all together yeah. and they'd live in these abandoned buildings and just huff glue. It's crazy. And there was no going to get them. Well, there's no like structure or like system to give these kids like a look like the American dream. It doesn't yeah, really exist. It's not the over same there. there. They don't have the resources mean? that we do. Yeah. You know, like if I went out, my parents would find and me. And it's kind of <laughs> slowly, slightly happening here. Oh, absolutely. That American dream is dwindling a little bit. Everything's becoming really expensive. That middle class is disappearing. You're either rich or you're poor. See, like, well, not even that, but we're starting to see it on our streets with all the people on drugs <sighs> and, and homeless. We had one homeless guy growing up and now there's like 200 people in my super tiny town. Yeah. So like it's, it's spreading. Yep. One of such disappearances occurred on a sunny and warm morning of July of 1999. A young boy, only nine years old, Fazial Rezak, hopefully I said that right, stepped out from his humble dwelling located in one of Lahore's densely populated neighborhoods. Lahore, a vibrant city in Pakistan, Punjab province, was his home. Uh, Fisal spent his day toiling at a workshop where children uh, his tender age were tasked with folding cardboard into paper boxes, all in exchange for a pittance to help support their families. That was the last morning he, uh, his parent, their parents saw their son. Weeks after Fisal's disappearance, another child, Shaquille Hassan, 13, departed from his home under the impression that he was going to school. Shaquille, however, never made it to his classes that day. Similarly, it was presumed that it wouldn't take Fasan Khan, the teenager, more than a few moments to return from approximate grocery store where he had been sent to buy flour. Yet Faraz too became a name on the growing list of missing children. Several other adolescents, including Taslim Ullah, 14, Abdul Majid, 16, Shaheen Nazar, 13, and Dilawar Husani, 15, disappeared over the ensuing months. All these boys came from low-income families and they seemingly evaporated evaporated within the intricate web of Lahore's historical labyrinth streets. That's what's crazy. Like, it's easy for a predator <clears throat> to go to places like this and get away with this stuff what? for so long. When you look up at it, like, like sex tourism and stuff, like it's gross. I've yeah, watched some documentaries on it. It's disturbing. They literally will go to these places to do these horrible things and they come back to America like it never, it never happened. Yeah. It reminds me of the movie, did you and I see it, the one... With Mia Goth, who was I with? I was with one of you. I think it was you. It was, it was you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like the, they, they went over went there, there and yeah, they, they killed people. Anything. Oh God, it was horrible. Yeah. Um, among these disappeared boys was Ijaz Muhammad, endearingly referred to as Kaka by his kin and Kaka by his older brother and teenagers himself. They made a living as masseurs, so massage people. They ambled through the city's bustling streets in their worn out sandals and lounged in parks rattling vibrant bottles of ointment to attract potential clients. Adorning ankle bracelets studied with shiny stones as a symbol of the Shia Muslim faith, the brothers offered head and shoulder massages to men who would occasionally invite them to their homes. Yeah. Oh, this doesn't yeah. sound good. No. Gross. One fateful day in October, Kakal and his brother were approached by two other boys of the gardens of Minera, Pakistan. At the gardens. 
the historical site of the 1940 Muslim demand for a separate homeland. Our boss needs a massage and he'll pay you double the price if you come with us. One of the boys purportedly, uh, no, whatever. Purportedly. <laughs> Close enough. I can't <laughs> speak today. <laughs> Offered. Intrigued by the promise of the double payment, the brothers followed their young guides through the streets of Lahore, turning corners and navigating narrow lanes until they reached the house 16B on Ravi Road, a stone's throw away from the Minar Pakistan monument. Kakao was asked to enter the house to meet the boss, Javed Iqbal, a small, bespeckled man with nearly uh, neatly combed hair. Meanwhile, Kakao's brother ventured off to look for another job, a common practice for them. Unbeknownst to him, this would be the last time anyone would see Kaka alive. The months that followed saw a nightmarish saga unfold, the likes of which the city had never seen before. It involved a sadistic and cunning serial killer whose guilt was never definitively established, even though human remains were found in his home. This horrific episode also featured inept police investigations, bereaved parents enduring an agonizing wait for justice and an entire city paralyzed by burgeoning climate of fear. That's one thing too in these areas. Like the policing is not no. top notch. There's just so much bad shit going on. Well, there's on. so many people in such and a small so space. People, yeah, what can they really do, right? Like I like, told you. Their what, hands are always full. When I'm in these places like downtown Toronto or downtown these busy places, mm. I see no cops. Yeah. Like it's weird. I, I don't know what that is. I don't know. I don't know if it's a, they're intimidated by so many people, but in small towns, I see cops everywhere. Yeah. But in these towns, no, you don't see them. Yeah, that's crazy. It was a sunny afternoon when the first pieces of the puzzle fell into place. A young boy, barely in his teens, went missing from a bustling market. Panic swept through the city as the news of his disappearance spread like wildfire. Parents clutched their children tightly, afraid that they may be next. The young Masur was among a hundred victims of the serial killer who systematically assaulted and strangled them before dissolving their bodies in vats of acid. Jeez. Various websites place him alongside some of the most despised serial killers of the previous century. His story is not just that sick of a disturbed mind. It's also an indictment of a society that failed to take care of its most vulnerable children. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Yeah. Those societies get away from them. The populations rise. The money's not there. No. The year 1999 was a tough one for Pakistan. In May, well, think about that's right before the Twin Towers went down, mm. <clears throat> which brought on so many things. In May, military leader Gen uh, General Pervez Musharraf, I know we're brutally ruining these names, and I'm really sorry. We're doing our best. Um, took over the government in a coup. The economy was reeling under U.S. sanctions imposed by the wake of the nuclear tests conducted by the military a year earlier. Young people were worried about the Y2K bug. Do you remember that? I do. Taylor does not. No. He wasn't born yet. Yeah. So uh, in the year 2000. I barely remember it. In 1999, when all the computers changed over to the year 2000, mm -hmm. They forgot to put an extra decimal point in the binary code for computers or like an like they didn't put a two for the digit. So it was going to, a lot of the computers were aired out to roll back to 1900 instead of the year 2000. And they thought the whole world was going to crash and explode and be Armageddon. But like they had fixes for it all. They just went and adjusted. I had a stuffed animal that was called the Y2K bug and it looked like this mosquito thing. But it would like everyone at midnight was like... <laughs> <laughs> What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? And I remember looking at like that old computer, and it just said like two thousand down in the corner. Like it figured That's it crazy. out. It's crazy. Um, the year nineteen ninety one. Oh, got Simply that one. Put. Simply put, the police reports of missing children were very low on the priority list. 
which is gross. That should be at the top. (laughs) In late November, however, Lahore's police office received a letter from an individual claiming to have murdered 100 runaway boys. This shocking claim was initially met with skepticism and little concern. However, given the sheer audacity of the claim, the deputy superintendent police, the DSP, Trick Kamhum, a mid-ranking officer, along with a few constables, reluctantly reluctantly decided to investigate. They went to the address specified on the letter, 16B Ravi Road, the same place where the young Masur Kaka had disappeared. What transpired in that residence that day unveiled the extent of police unpreparedness in dealing with the cunning and manipulative Iqbal. When they arrived, Iqbal was present. As the police began interrogating him about the disturbing letter, his behavior became increasingly erratic. In a shocking move, Iqbal produced a gun and threatened to end his own life if left alone. If he wasn't left alone. If he wasn't. Sorry, that's a big detail. Yeah, that's a good word to have in there. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, if you leave me alone, I'm going to hurt myself. (laughs) Despite the alarming turn of events, the police didn't arrest Iqbal. They didn't even venture into the peculiarly constructed three-bedroom house. Peculiarly constructed three-bedroom house. Built like a Russian... Mm, um, those dolls, there's like a whole bunch inside. Yeah, the 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 nested dolls. I I don't know how to pronounce that. Let's try that. Matryoshka. Matryoshka doll. Matryoshka. With rooms within rooms. Cambo decided to depart, leaving Iqbal alone with his licensed firearm. Wow, it was a licensed gun at least. Yeah. Interestingly, Iqbal's name was not unfamiliar to the police. Over the previous decade, he had been the subject of at least two complaints of sodomy involving underage boys. Like the writing's (sighs) on the wall here, guys. Like, come on, lunch break's over. (laughs) <laughs> like, yet, Get to work Yet Cambo dismissed Iqbal as harmless When he reported back to his superiors This man can't be a killer of hundreds of kids He's a nutcase well, <laughs> That's exactly who you think would kill the kids A nutcase Come on guys <sighs> He claimed little knowing the true horror That was yet to unfold Iqbal who was 38 years old at the time Had an inflated sense of his own importance uh, his acquaintances recall that he regularly boasted about his alleged ties with politicians and bureaucrats. Oh, there we go. That helps. <laughs> now he was frustrated the police weren't talking to him seriously, taking him seriously. Oh, so he's like, he wants them to fucking investigate it. He's, he's pissed off. That why is not. it hard for, why is it hard to get arrested for murder? Right. Like, I feel like in this thing, he'd be like, look at these bones. And they'd be like, ah. Such a fine line there <laughs> between like all that attention stuff, right? Like, No, it's weird. It's weird. You can't put them in the news too much because that's what they want, but you have to do it enough because we have to investigate. But he literally wrote and said, hey, I killed all these boys. And they're like, we don't believe you. In my head, I see like a bunch of funny guy. Oh my gosh. Oh, all right. That must have felt similar to the rejection he endured as a child when his family refused to accept that he was unlike other boys. His brother, Zia Uahak, said during an interview that as a boy, he was violent and eccentric. He would give a lot of headache to our parents. If he wanted anything, he threatened to hurt himself until our father relented. With the police not taking him seriously, Iqbal mailed the same letter along with dozens of pictures of boys to the office of Zhang Pakistan, the most popular Udur language newspaper. The heavy envelope landed on the desk of Jamil Krishki, the editor, and the paper's crime section. Wait, so he's just like... I killed all these kids. I'm going to send pictures. The police don't believe me. So let's put it in the paper. 
So does he want to be stopped? It sounds like he wants to be stopped. Yeah, he wants to be caught and like be like put in the paper and the news and like everybody know his story. It's just, a lot of them have that sick, sadistic side to them, right? Kishti was sick was sickened after going through the contents of the envelope. He said, I thought that there would be two possibilities. Either someone was trying to frame him or this man had really done it. The letter written in Urdu was an admission of a series of brutal murders. Iqbal chronicled how he strangled the boys and dissolved their bodies in acid. He shared their names and addresses and even described in minute details, such as the shapes of their faces, the types of sandals they were wearing, and the body parts that aroused him the most. He disclosed how much it cost him to buy the acid, how long it took for a body to be dissolved, and who helped him. It is what it was. Indeed true. The count of Iqbal's victims is more than that of Samuel Little, America's most prolific serial killer, who murdered 93 women. How many did Dahmer murder? Um, it wasn't, I don't know. Because this is like a Pakistani Dahmer, basically. Like bodies and acid and shit. How many? I haven't heard yet in this. Well, yeah, it said sodomized at one point. Like, was there sexual acts going yeah, on? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that's definitely. There was seventeen for Dahmer. Yeah, so, so like, this is like he's like Dahmer. This is who? Crazier. Who? Like, <laughs> like they try and radicalize and like make huge stories about like American serial killers, but like some of this shit going on in other places of the world is well. It's crazy that he has insane. to fight to say I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. Like he obviously had proof. Like if they came in, like he has vats of acid. No, can they not just like use a strainer? I, I don't know. I don't know how that works. That's some gruesome details there from Selena herself. If the story was to be published, it was important for the newspaper to check the house where Iqbal claimed he had left the evidence. Chisiti uh, and a colleague found a 16B Vavi Road on the dead-end street resembling thousands of similar structures in Lahore with bare brick walls and wooden doors. The house was abandoned and padlocked. No one was there. The nearly two-meter-tall front wall, climbable, was climbable, so the journalists scaled it. Inside, that's some true journalism right there. Yeah. Inside, they found blue-colored... Pl- <laughs> Taylor and I would so do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Inside, they found blue-colored plastic containers and bundles of clothes and shoes. Just as Iqbal had described in his letter, a strange str- uh, stench hung in the air. They removed the... <laughs> <laughs> if you want to kill, you know where to go. Rest in peace. Like We're painful. saying this all with like pure respect. I'm just mind-blown at the audacity. Yeah, how... like. Just, it's all the writings on the wall. Yeah. Red rum. Literally, you probably even wrote on the walls. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I apologize for my wife today, everybody. Well, it's just frustrating. It's frustrating. I'm so frustrated. He's like, I killed these people. And they're like, what? You silly boy. (laughs) (laughs) Tricks are for kids. Jesus. They removed the cover of one of the canisters and were hit by a pungent whiff. Inside the canisters were uh, what appeared to be half-decomposed human remains suspended in liquid that smelled like formaldehyde, a chemical used to preserve bodies. The newspaper contacted families of some of the missing boys whose addresses Iqbal had meticulously recorded in his diary and shared in his letter. When it was confirmed that the boys were actually missing, the journalists decided they had enough evidence to write a story. So the journalists have enough evidence to write the story? I think so. So they find, so the cops have been there, right? And they interrogate him. But they didn't look in the giant weird vats in his house. But the journalist scales the wall and finds 
dead boys and, and contacts their families, not the police. That lets you know how messed up they are over there for the fact that like, yeah. oh, I didn't want that to come off wrong. But like the fact that a journalist is finding bodies and they well, go to the parents Pakistan instead of- Pakistan needs some North American police officers and North America needs some Pakistani journalists. Oh, fuck. That sounded bad. <laughs> I just want everyone to love everybody and nobody to hurt anybody. And so, here's the thing. Some cops are good. Some cops are bad. I have had a run in with both. I've had, I've definitely run into Whoa, some cops where I'm like, so different over there too. I know, but dude like, here, I have had some cops where it was just ego and they were horrible. And I'm like, yep, I was afraid you were going to kill me. And then I've also had cops where I was like, this is the person I want to show up when there's a problem. Mm -hmm. But yeah. the issue is there's such a divide. Why are they not just all in the middle? But in these countries, like a lot, um, definitely like Mexico and Brazil, I don't know about Pakistan, but possibly like the, the, Policing over there is so corrupt and so paid off. Paid off, yeah. I remember I've seen so many documentaries on this and 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 movies too, where at the end of it you find out like, oh, the rich guy, the rich guy always wins. Well, yeah, it's it's money, and Follow that's what's crazy. With anything, right? Anyways, the next day, December third, Zhang printed this story on its front page under the headline "Claim of Murder of Hundred Kids." The newspaper published the names of the victims along with the pictures of fifty-seven of the slain boys many of them wearing cheeky smiles. All hell broke loose as soon as the issue hit the stands. Bundles of clothing and shoes were found in Iqbal's house were brought to a local police station for identification. News of these discoveries quickly spread, leading to a flood of grieving parents descending upon the evidence room. Mothers broke down in sorrow as they recognized the kameez and the shawl, the shirts and pants, of their missing sons that they once wore. Fathers riddled with galt, guilt and frustration for failing to safeguard their children bellowed vows of vengeance. From Iqbal's home, police seized two large blue drums and numerous plastic cans, all containing a corrosive cocktail of hydrocolic and sulfuric acids. A horrifying discovery was made within those containers. One drum held a human torso. Another contained two severed feet and a dismembered hip. Hip girdle. I just didn't know what that word was. <laughs> <laughs> like sulfuric acid? Yeah. Okay, we, we got on, you. Move on. We got you. We're <laughs> Thank here you. For Thank you. you. Despite the severe decomposition, the medical examiner managed to confirm that the remains belonged to the boys aged between 13 and 17. Disturbingly, an ankle bracelet was found on one of the feet, strikingly similar to the one that Kaka had worn on the night he was last seen in, in uh, with Iqbal. Further investigation of Iqbal's house yielded bags full of human hair. Traces of hair were ubiquitous throughout the house. On a comb, an iron rod, cooking utensils, oh God, the floor, a bed, and even inside a jug. As the chilling case drew international media attention, the local peace, uh, the police felt mounting pressure from the government to promptly conclude their investigation. They possessed a confession and damning evidence, but the primary suspect, Javad Iqbal, who, like the notorious American serial killer Dennis Ratter, taunted both the police and journalists with his uh, ghastly deeds, was nowhere to be found. Oh, of course. Let him run. With Iqbal seemingly vanished, law enforcement shifted focus of his uh, acquaintances. To his acquaintances. Oh, to his Haha, <laughs> got you. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> your help. Where's his acquaintances? Acquaintances. <laughs> 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 Law enforcement, <laughs> we really <laughs> Law enforcement shifted focus to his acquaintances and family members, detaining several in their pursuit of the elusive suspect. 
As they delve into the investigations, a grim and complex portrait of Iqbal's past began to emerge. Iqbal hailed from a sizable family with nine siblings. They resided in Lahore's old commercial district, Bandrith Road, where their father operated a successful steel pipe manufacturing business named Muhadid Ali and Sons. They were comfortably middle class with the area's standards, owing, owning multiple properties, stores, buildings, and plots. Iqbal's nephew, Oya Zia, started with TRT World. Many people in Lahore knew about the business of Muhammad Ali and Sons. The family was known to be fervent followers of the saint whose shrines scatter the province of Punjab and were strong believers in the faith healers and their prophecies. From a young age, Iqbal exhibited a deep love for reading, often kept his personal diaries, and contributed articles to magazines. However, his behavior was often disruptive, frequently inflicting conflict with his peers in the neighborhood and acting unpredictably. Zihal Haq, Iqbal's brother, recalled, sometimes he'd wake up, everyone in the middle of the night, and ask us to line up behind him. It was as if, like, some spirit had possessed him. The reality was that Iqbal was homosexual, a fact that his traditional Muslim family. <laughs> the way Taylor just looked at you, he was homosexual, and Taylor's just like, homosexual. <laughs> what? <laughs> we got another homosexual on the show now. Yeah, I looked him up. Yeah. Ugh. He doesn't look like a serial killer, but they never really do. It's true. I don't know. Dahmer looks He looks like, like Harry Potter killer. to me. He looks more like Harry Potter. Harry He's even Potter. got the scar. He looks like he'd have a British accent. What would you like? Some yeah. tea? I don't know. I no comment. I feel like this podcast is going to get us in trouble. Nothing is meant in harm. <laughs> We're allowed to have a little bit of fun when yes, we talk well, it's about not the dark, fun. deep things. No, it's not. Like, it's not fun. We're allowed to have a little bit of light humor throughout. I just want everyone to love everybody. Yes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Iqbal's reputation as a child predator was... Or did I already read this? He was a homosexual. That's what sure. Yeah, where's that part? I'm, I, I'm the circled stuff. Yeah. Gotcha. The reality was that Iqbal was homosexual, a fact that his traditional Muslim family struggled to accept, yet was known to many around him. Iqbal would rather later recount that a faith healer warned his family of grave repercussions should they force him into a, a heterosexual marriage. Fair enough. You should never force anyone to love somebody that they don't you love. Know, different parts of the world are still not caught up on that, right? Mm. Professor Stephen Holmes, an expert on violent serial killers, elaborated on the difficulty uh, homosexuals faced during the 1970s and 80s. Even in the more liberal United States, he explained. Uh, their families rejected them. They were completely shunned. Iqbal's struggle with his sexual orientation coupled with social rejection may have contributed to his malignant behavior, uh, said the journalist Holmes. By his 20s, ominous hints of a darker side began to surface. Iqbal started showing signs of becoming a manipulative pedophile, demonstrating a disturbance preference for pu uh, pubescent boys. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, if we're going to restrict people's, um, like, sexual preferences, like, then see, things like this can develop. Well, Deep Sea, you're planting, you're planting a scary you seed. You know what I mean? Like, like just fucking everybody, be. leave everybody alone and let them do what the hell they want. Yes. Like, nobody should as be... As long as you're not diddling. Nobody should be putting sexual preferences onto anybody or stopping anybody from the sexual preferences that no. they want. No. Just don't harm When you anybody. tell someone, no, it's like when they say, okay, don't date this boy, then they're going to go, like, I'm talking about, like, a normal relationship, like, say, you know, like... A mother to their child, regardless of who they're dating. You're not allowed to see this person. They're going to go behind their parents' back. They're going to do some weird shit yeah. to see that person. So you're like, okay, you're not allowed to be exactly who you were born to be. 
that's gonna break. That's, that's gonna break your brain. Fucking people up, right? That's gonna break your brain. Yeah. In the early 1980s, Rayo Nafasat was a sixth grader from the FG school in Sargoda, and his friends started corresponding with Iqbal through a pen pal system uh, advertised in Al Tahir magazine. He used to write uh, with about his interest in collecting stamps and how he wanted to exchange them. <sighs> okay, I'll be honest. Stamp collectors are fucking weird. I have some stamps. Don't talk. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Nafisa recalls Iqbal was charismatic and persuasive, uh, writing in colorfully marked letters that carried a pleasant fragrance. He would often send money along with his letters, enticing the boys to share their pictures and to visit him. Hmm, interesting. That could be taken a, different, a few different ways. Meanwhile, Iqbal's reputation as a child predator was growing in his neighborhood. His family found themselves increasingly overwhelmed by accusations of his predatory behavior. Rizwan Bajwa, a neighbor resident, confirms, everybody knew he molested young boys. Why did no one punch this guy in the face? <laughs> it's insane how different cultures across the world react to things or will ignore things or like stay out of people's business. Well, there's still like, there's still like people in parts of the world that like mutilate genitalia and stuff. Yeah, like, and that's, that's so scary. Um, Iqbal's accusations escalated over time, turning violent and non-consensual. In 1990, he, was enti he enticed a nine-year-old boy into his home and assaulted him. A complaint of sodomy was filed against him, but it was suppressed through bribes to the police and the victim's family. Oh my God, they paid them off. The incident drove a wedge between Iqbal and his siblings. When their family's inheritance was divided, Iqbal received a substantial amount. He invested in his... He invested this in building a house and setting up his own metalworks workshop, staffed almost entirely by underage boys, most of whom were runaways. So he literally made a place where he can just pick off whatever he wants. That's gross. Sounds like Pinocchio. <sighs> a little bit, yeah. Ziel Hawk recalls he loved those boys a lot. Iqbal provided food, lodging, and new clothes for his young employees, and even took them on road trips to the northern resort of town Marie. One of these boys, Saheed, became one of Iqbal's most trusted allies. In some respects, Iqbal's behavior paralleled that of John Wayne Gacy, an American serial killer who preyed on both young men in the 1970s. Like Iqbal, Gacy ran a construction business where he employed young men who ended up his victims. So it's like he's taking bits and pieces from all of these American serial killers. Maybe. You know, he's got the young boys working for him, like John Wayne Gacy. He's got the, like, the vat of acid, like Dahmer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's just like, what other options do you have too, though, right? Those are like... Well, you can get are, creative, those baby. Those are basically the drag, yeah, but when I would use a carrot peeler. Stuff, I think. Wow. <laughs> that's gross. Yeah, that's a little much. Some shavings, skin shavings, and just... Okay. <clears throat> There's nothing wrong Selena's with me. There's nothing wrong normal, with me. I promise. There's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me. Just like Kemper, Iqbal <laughs> wanted to know... <laughs> Oh my God, Selena! Please take it back. I'm gonna get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> the ghastly contents included children's clothes, shoes, and photos. The receptionist was skeptical about Iqbal's claim, assuming it has to be a macabre joke. Macabre. Ma macabre. Macabre. What is that macabre joke? Never came like, across that mm -hmm. before. Oh, okay. Oh, like a disturbing joke? Yeah. Oh, don't be so macabre. Okay. But when she altered senior journalist Ruth Clarissa, um, 
he realized that the severity of the situation. Klesra later recalled, Iqbal had this claim, uh, this calm, cool demeanor. He didn't seem agitated at all. It was as if he was one of the sort, on some sort of a mission. Psychopath. The police were immediately informed and soon arrested Iqbal. They also detained four other suspects, including his accomplice, Sajid. Upon raiding Iqbal's house on Ravi Road, they discovered a horrifying scene. The house was filled with stomach-turning odors with hydrochloric acid-filled containers and a stove to dissolve the bodies of his victims. There were pictures of the boys as well as letters from his pen pals. He had a collection of videotapes that held uh, his recorded assaults. Ew. That's gross. That's so sad. Like, the mental illness that has to run (laughs) as deep as it runs for you to be okay to hang out in your house and just melt some bodies. Dude, why didn't he like get rid of the evidence? He had so much time, no one believed well, him. That's the thing, that's what I mean, how deeply mentally ill like this person is. Like, how can you fucking be in the house alone? How can, and how can you do that shit? Like, just how? I could never hurt anything. It's, these minds are like, like you almost- I hope he's dead. You have to sort of be born with this ability, but then it's environmentally impacted to to wake it up or like see how extreme it gets. Maybe. Yeah, it's and just like, like some people's schizophrenia. Like they can live their whole life without it, but like they did like a bunch of drugs that happens, like stimulated yeah. it. That's when they told me, like it's not my family, but I remember, I don't know if this is even PC anymore, but back when I first talked about like mental health, my doctor when I was younger, he was like, don't do drugs. If you do drugs, you'll get schizophrenia. Well, I mean... Is that a thing? I don't know. That doesn't sound right. My opinion on schizophrenia is it has a lot to do with spiritual stuff like in ghosts and other realms. And doing drugs can absolutely open up those realms more. Like psychedelics and weed and stuff. Or I do mushrooms. So like a schizophrenic smoking weed or doing mushrooms is probably going to bring on more schizophrenia because that stuff's going to go into hyperdrive. Or like that other side they're tapping into is going to just fucking be insane. No, that's why I don't. Investigation officers Rana Eders told TRT World, there were shoes, clothes, toys, and letters. It was a nightmare. Iqbal's detailed diary entries, his photos, his victims' belongings confirmed the shocking scale of his crimes. The police quickly began identifying the victims using photos and the letters they found. The families, most of whom were from working class backgrounds, were informed of the fate of their missing children. Punjab Chief Minister Shabazz Sharif formed a committee to oversee the investigation. The senior police officers involved in the case sought the services of a criminologist from the United States to understand Iqbal's behavior better. The aftermath. Iqbal's confessions and the grim evidence of his crimes shook Pakistan to its core. The Pakistani media was ablaze with the discussions on his heinous deeds, and people found themselves grappling with the reality of such evil in their midst. The court proceedings began on April 7, 2000 in Lahore's district court, his defense lawyer, Fashel Nahib, was met with public outrage as he later admitted, people wanted to kill me for representing him. Imagine getting the job of representing Ew, him. Ew, I couldn't. How do you, like, someone has to do it. It was probably a forced acceptance if no one would. Well, like, we know he's going to jail. There's, I don't know, it's weird. I guess it's a long ass trial. There's money to be made there, as dark as that sounds. But <sighs> Given the compelling evidence against him, Iqbal and his accomplices were swiftly convicted. On August 16th, 2000, the judge announced a chilling sentence. 
Iqbal was to be strangled with a chain, chopped into pieces and dissolved in acid, mimicking the manner Why don't we do of that his here? own killings. Why don't we do that here? I've always said, well, a lot of people agree equal punishment for yes. crimes. Yes. Right? Like That's like when they say like child abusers that go to go yeah. to jail get abused. I'm like, yeah. yeah. You need you need that to scare people from doing this stuff. Like more and more Like, people. oh, you're going to go to jail for 25 years and be fed three meals a day and then you get to come out and be normal again. Yeah. What? Yeah, like what the fuck? Oh, you don't have to pay taxes for the next 20 years? Cool. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> get a bed. You get friends? Yeah. Might want to kill you, but you get friends. <sighs> However, the sentence could not be executed due to a moratorium on capital punishment. So they took away capital time punishment for that time mm. being or something. I guess we didn't get rid right into that part before we got excited. Eh? I, I was really excited to hear about it. I think he was just hung. Iqbal and his accomplices were imprisoned at the Kot Lakpat jail. Two years later, on October 7, 2001, Iqbal and Sahajid were found hanged in their cells. Their deaths were deemed suicides, though suspicious the foul play were rife. Mm, they it, got hung. <laughs> yeah. Iqbal's horrifying case exposed the vulnerability of children, particularly runaways, to predatory individuals. It forced the government and society at large to reevaluate their systems of child protection and law enforcement. Many hope that the painful lessons from Iqbal's reign of terror will prevent such atrocities from happening again. Even though Iqbal is gone, the memory of his crime still haunt the families of his victims and the country as a whole. His case serves as a grim reminder of humanity's darker side and the lengths that some will go to and what they're willing to do to fulfill their twisted desires. This story is undoubtedly one of the most disturbing and tragic examples of serial killing and child exploitation. Javad Iqbal's actions were abhorrent and the way he manipulated and abused his victims is truly horrifying. His case highlights the importance of the robust child protection measures public awareness about such dangers and the need for quick and effective action by authorities when suspicions are raised. It's also a stark reminder of how individuals like Iqbal can hide their monstrous actions behind a facade of normalcy, often exploiting positions of trust or authority. There seems to be a lot of speculation around the circumstances of his death. It's not uncommon for high-profile criminals to make claims of conspiracies and cover-ups, and it's also not unusual for rumor and speculation to circulate around such cases. However, without concrete concrete evidence, these, these claims remain unverified. Despite the atrocities committed by Iqbal, it's also important to note that his trial and the subsequent sentencings uh, highlight issues around the adherence and to due process and the respect for human rights. Even those accused or convicted of the most heinous crimes this case underscores the importance of providing justice to victims and their families in a manner that respects the rule of law and international standards of human rights. While the desire for vengeance and retribution is understandably given the nature of Iqbal's crimes, the justice system must operate with fairness and integrity. Um, at times, yes. <laughs> <laughs> fairness would be uh, fair for him to Die. have bad things happen. Yep. Each one of those family members should get a stab. The The biggest takeaway for me from this, and I've said this all my like adulthood when I kind of see things going awry in society, is there's nothing more important in this world than protecting our children. 
Yeah, and this right here, it is important that these tragic events serve as a reminder for the critical need to protect children and ensure that justice is served fairly and promptly and continually strive for society where such monstrous actions are prevented before they can take root. And that goes down to the words in the the saying that I will always say, if you see something, say something. Because hindsight, as we have learned a lot recently, is 2020. And if you're thinking, if you got a gut feeling about something, say something. Yep. You have to. You have to. But there's nothing more important in this world than protecting our children and raising our children well and protected because society and this whole world runs on your next generation. Mm-hmm. And it's all, it's and, all up to next, and, you know? And, and as far as like just the importance and of life, and there's nothing more important than a child and, and it being safe. Exactly. So guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Honda State. It was a little different. We tried something new. Um, I definitely, I outsourced to someone. I said, I want to have like a really cool, um, thing to talk about. Obviously it was very dark. I said, keep it dark. I didn't give them much, but I think this was a really interesting yeah. story to learn about. Check um, out the makeup, check out the books. Yeah. Check out my makeup, check out my books. Hollow is still up and we still have some of the shit palettes, but until next time, I want to remind you no matter what's going on in your life, that tomorrow is a new day and everything can change. You are not always down. You are not always up, but you will never stay in the same place. Things always do get better. All right. Love you guys. Bye. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.